0: Hello, welcome to the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast, where it is all about helping amazing physicians just like you create a wealthy life, free from burnout, and with the financial security to practice medicine on your own terms. I'm your host, Dr. Elisa John. Welcome back to the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset Podcast. Today's episode is number two in a three-part series where I was a guest on the Dare to Dream podcast hosted by Dr. Whaley Gray. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I highly encourage you go ahead and listen to that episode first, since it is a continuation of that conversation. This episode was recorded two years ago in October 2021, before the Grow Your Wealthy Mindset podcast existed. I hope you enjoy.
1: Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Dare to Dream Physician Podcast. I'm so excited today to continue part two of a three-part conversation with our guest, Dr. Elisa Zhang. She is an MD-PhD, an ophthalmologist, and oculoplastic surgeon. She's also a life coach and founder of Grow Your Wealthy Mindset. If you missed last week's episode, please add that to your queue after you're done listening to this one. She talks about her journey as a medical student, a graduate student, a resident fellow and attending the struggles she had along the way and how she was able to change her mindset and find transformation and contentment without changing any of her circumstances yet. She did eventually decide to change her job, but that was really the icing on the cake after she changed her mindset. And today I'm excited to continue that conversation. So stay tuned, you're in for a treat. This is a great time to talk about how there is a common feeling amongst physicians, especially when we talk about physician wellness, that they just have to do more yoga. And and maybe now as we're talking about coaching, because coaching is becoming more widespread in the physician space, or maybe they just need to do more coaching, do more yoga, do more coaching, do more exercise, do more wellness. And I think physicians can sometimes resent that because they're like, okay, Here I am feeling the weight of the system. And maybe now after coaching, they don't feel like they have to carry the whole weight of the system, but the system hasn't changed. Maybe their thoughts around it have. And so the question would be, do they have to stay in a system like that? Or are are we telling physicians to just change themselves? Or are we also empowering physicians to make a bigger impact or maybe to just make a change in their life? And I like how in your example, you did go through intensive coaching and even did the coach training and went through a life transformation. But you also, after that, you also made a change in your life by choosing to go to another job.
0: Yeah. I was reading an article recently where I don't remember it was 2019 or 2020, where we've just transitioned from more physicians working for corporations instead of working either for themselves or for another physician. And that... I think is actually a bad thing for medicine. I would love to see more physicians owning their own practices or working for other physicians or being in, in physician-owned type situations, as opposed to working for big hospital systems or working for, I don't want to say venture capitalists, but
1: well, yeah, you know. venture capital is yeah. going into the physician practice space, right? A lot of private practices are being bought by venture capital. Yeah.
0: And I'm not saying it's wrong to work for a hospital. I mean, there are some people who work for hospitals and love their position. And there are hopefully hospitals that still treat their physicians well. And I know that even within my hospital, things are a little different between different departments. But I do think for physician autonomy and for our own choice, it is it is best when we actually have a seat at the table of how healthcare, how the system works. And I think we've really relinquished that seat in a lot of ways. And part of that is if physicians can be secure in their own finances and don't feel so tied or, or trapped and handcuffed to their job for their paycheck, then then at that point they may be more ready to and ready and willing to explore more what they really want to do. You know, yes, I'm going part time, but I don't necessarily plan on leaving medicine. I know that there are physicians who are leaving medicine because they can't find that balance. And I would love to see a world where physicians can find that balance of being able to practice medicine, but still do the hobbies they love or the side businesses they love or spend time with their family. And I do think having a a strong financial position such that they can weather any storm. So if they're in a situation where at work, where it's really not working for them, that they can leave, even if they don't have another job lined up. Or even to the point where they don't necessarily have to work for that income, but they're doing it because they want to do and they love to do it. So I did a mission trip to Honduras in 2019, and I absolutely loved it. And I basically paid to practice, right? I paid for my airfare. I paid for you know, all the expenses to go on that trip. And I took my vacation time in order to go, but it was so fulfilling to do that. I definitely know that part of me loves to practice of medicine. And I have to say, I love that I basically saw a patient, evaluated the patient, basically wrote down, here's the problem, this is what I can do to, to fix it, which in, in general was a surgical, did the surgery, you know, no thoughts about prior authorizations or you know any of that, and was able to serve these patients. It was it was lovely. Hmm.
1: So it was getting back to that pure act of service and the pure act of helping people in a very specialized skill set that you have because I certainly can't go to Honduras and figure out what's wrong with these people's eye problems and operate on them. I mean, that's amazing that you can do that. Yeah.
0: And I do want to say there's definitely for other countries more benefit if we can teach the doctors there to do it to sustain their system. But I do feel like as a super specialist, Honduras is not anywhere near the point where they're going to have a whole band of microplastics people. So I still feel good about just going there, fixing their problem. And I really love the organization I was with. They do have someone there who is an eye professional who can continue to follow these patients. It's not like it's it's a void so that, you know, we just go in and come out. And this organization actually goes back to the same clinic every year which unfortunately during the pandemic hasn't happened. There are people who go on mission trips really well intentioned, but if you just go there, operate, and then there's no follow-up more longer term, sometimes you're not doing as much good as as you think. And so I, I do just want to put that preference out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so share with us the name of this
0: organization and how how did you find them? Yeah. Vision Health International. I found them at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So they specifically just do eye ophthalmology, cataracts, obviously is a, a big problem for blindness across the world, but they also do recruit some of us specialists to do our surgeries as well. So yeah, I just, I happen to be shopping for surgical instruments. So you can actually get surgical instruments for much cheaper that are made in like China and India. And so I was going there to buy some for myself. And I just happened to talk to someone else who was shopping there and he was buying them for this organization. And uh, and so we just got to chatting and I always knew I, as a resident, I, I knew I wanted to contribute new mission trips. In fact, I think one of the, the things that got me into ophthalmology was seeing this National Geographic documentary about this ophthalmologist who went to the Himalayas and was doing cataract surgery there. And that was like really inspirational. Um, mm-hmm. I remember talking to, so doing the MD-PhD, I had a lot of friends from med school who ended up becoming attendings before me because I spent the extra four years doing the research. And so in my friends as emergency medicine doctor, and, and we were talking about international work and she was saying as an eye surgeon can really go. And if you take out someone's cataract, it is life-changing. She's like, when I do a mission Absolutely. trip, I can help them with like their immediate issue, but it's not necessarily as life-changing.
1: Yes. That's actually what what I've been thinking about as you were talking about the difficulties that you were having at work. Because I don't know a lot of ophthalmologists, but I do know that my dad had cataracts and an ophthalmologist fixed it and he can see clearly. And I mean, how many people do we know who are elderly who also had that? That's a huge gift. And I know that Medicare is decreasing their reimbursements for something as life-changing as a cataract surgery. And it just saddens me because I'm thinking, "I I don't get it. You know, I mean, eyesight is... Is such an important thing for all humans. And to hear about ophthalmologists struggling, when I say struggle, I mean, just being able to sustain their practice or feeling like they have to see even more patients to sustain their practice and getting burned out as a result of it, it just doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense that a hospital system wouldn't really respect and try to make it work out for an eye surgeon, especially you, because you have such a specialized area that you took so many years to train that I have absolutely no ability to do and neither do most of the people out there. And so it's just kind of sad as me. And I love how going on this missions trip, or, or even thinking about the impact that you can make in such a short time that connects you back to your skills and your love of why you went into your field. It's a, a message that all physicians need to hear because it seems like the, the narrative that many physicians have and, and part of their contribution for burnout and having physicians in, in this country having such a high rate of burnout is them feeling disrespected, them feeling like they have no control over their work anymore. And when you think about going to another place that's totally different from our system and just serving, just practicing medicine there and helping the people in those countries, you realize what value you bring. It doesn't, I mean it doesn't have to be ophthalmology, but really medicine in general and all the skills that that all of us as physicians have, it's a really highly specialized skill set that most of, this, most of the people in this country don't have, and certainly even less of the people in the world have. And it, it just reminds me how valuable we are and how, despite how we may feel in our day-to-day life about our value and our skills as a physician, that something like a missions trip really can be a reminder for us.
0: Actually, I want to put a plug in because with the group that I'm at, we do have non-physician volunteers come. Obviously, we do have nurses um, to help with like recovery and all that part of the surgery. But we also just have people who come to go out into the community and check people's visions. So we have people who are not trained in medicine at all. So actually, some of the physicians even bring their their children, their older children, and they go out in the field and just check people with an eye chart and we can teach anyone how to do those kind of things. So even if you're not a physician or you're a physician who can't see what you're going to do on a mission trip, there's still things that you can do to add value and, and serve patients. Mm, yeah, that's great.
1: So let's talk about money, the, the biggest taboo in our society. I would love to have a conversation about that with you because you have taught yourself a lot about money and I think you think about money a lot and this conversation can be very interesting. And I don't think I've really had a conversation about money on my podcast before. So this will be a first. Yeah,
0: I know. Uh, So it is more, I think, American taboo or in our American society. I actually just recently read Happy Money by Ken Honda, and he's and in, in the very beginning of the book, he actually so he, he's in Japan, and some woman walks up to him and asks to see his wallet. <laughs> and I guess this is something that happens in Japan, and then she started going through his money and looking, you know, everything in his wallet. So it just shows just how different different cultures uh, look at money. But yeah, I would say in the U.S., people don't want to talk about how much they make. Or how much they have. I don't know if part of it is if you say that you have a lot that people are gonna take advantage of you or the thoughts that other people have. But yeah, I think even as a physician, when we're looking for jobs, I know when I was a fellow looking for my first job, I didn't actually know about the MMG data. I didn't, you know, I looked online as much as I could to find out, like, well, you know, how much does the inoculoplastics person make? And obviously it's different in different regions in the country. But in the end, I think it, it just took like getting a lot of offers to get an idea of what was possible. I think that knowledge is really power and we can all rise by knowing. So during my MD PhD years, I taught for Kaplan MCAT prep for, for Kaplan. And there were several of us MD PhDs who did that during grad school. You have a little bit more time than med school to do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so sometimes they would put it out there that, oh, can anyone teach this class? on whatever date and whatever location. And we got paid per class or or whatever hours per class. But we actually got paid different rates among us. And we would actually talk about the rate. So I remember one time this class came up and I said, well, I'll teach that class, but I want this rate, which is above the rate you usually pay me because it's last minute and it was a, a location that was further traveled to. And I can't remember how the whole conversation played out, but you know, I said, well, I know that you paid that much for so-and-so to teach for you. And the manager got super pissed. She's like, "You, it is inappropriate for you guys to be talking about how much you get paid. And I'm just like, it's a free country woman. We can say how much we're getting paid. You just think it's inappropriate because now I know that you will pay more and I'm asking for more. And she didn't give it to me. And actually, I think after that, I uh, taught for them less. It was kind of like a sour taste of my mouth. Probably a sour taste in hers too. (laughs)
1: Hmm. Well, that's so interesting. So I'm resonating with, with what you're saying because I grew up Chinese American. I actually was born in China, but I spent most of my childhood in the U.S. And there's definitely more of a cultural taboo in the U.S. to talk about money than, for example, in China, where people do openly ask people what their income is. And I don't know if they ask them in their face or they ask them behind their back, but it's just the topic that tends to come up more often, I think. And and so like when I was growing up I actually thought that that the U.S. system was a little bit better because I was like, oh, well, it's less materialistic and we're not so focused on people's income like because that's not really their whole worth. There's probably some truth there, right? There's a sort of a hesitancy to rate ourselves just by our income, at least openly. But I think the other side of that is in the U.S., there is a big culture of shame around money, right? Like part of the reason why people don't want to talk about it is because, because they feel bad about it. I mean, a lot of people are in debt. There are a lot of people, because we don't talk about it, I think a lot a lot of people don't even know about how to handle personal finances. That certainly was the case for me when I was in medical school and residency. And then when they do feel that they're in a bad place, they, they feel desperate, and maybe there's too much debt, there's really no forum to talk about it. So they're sort of suffering alone.
0: I think you're right. There is a lot of shame. I think a lot of families actually don't talk about money within their family, right? So parents don't talk to kids about money. Kim, might ask like, well, why can't I have something? And maybe a lot of parents don't want to tell them like, well, you know, we can't afford it. Or maybe they do say we can't afford it, but they don't you know explain why. I know that in my family, we've talked about money more than the average American family. I know that my parents actually uh, talked to me about starting an IRA as soon as I graduated to college. And they were just like, okay, you're working now. You need to start an IRA. And they didn't really explain what that, that meant. But I was like, okay, they told me to do this. So I went and opened an IRA. And I started putting money in it. But they didn't actually even say, oh, now when the money's in there, you have to actually invest it. So mm-hmm. I sat in cash for a few years until I'm like, oh... I actually need to do something with the money in there. And also even just teaching entrepreneurship to, to children, right? I think children are naturally curious and they want to learn and building healthy relationship with money probably, I mean, does start it in childhood. Just like building any relationship with anything starts early on. And if people grow up thinking money is scarce... It's hard to get money. You have to work hard for money. And then that's what they're going to bring towards the rest of their life. Where what if money is easy? What if money, there's always sufficient money. If we had these thoughts, how would that change how we live our life? And I'm not saying that we should just go out and buy all the luxuries and spend all the money when we don't have it. But if we don't spend all of our life just focused on how much money we have, how much money other people have, what that can buy us instead of focusing on like, what do I really want out of life? And obviously everyone needs some amount of money to pay for food and housing and clothes, but there have actually been studies that show that once you get to a certain level of income, more money does not actually buy you
1: happiness. And that's a fairly low amount. I mean, for most physicians, right? It's do you do you know off the top of your yeah. So how much there was one
0: study that was done. It was somewhere in the seventy thousand dollars, and then there was another study that was done later. And they actually did the the second study. They went across the entire world. So in the United States, it's around a hundred thousand dollars. But of course, it's going to vary depending on where you live in the United States. But pretty much any full time physician, once they're out of training, is above that number.
1: Right, and that number, I assume, is looking at you can live a decent life and buy groceries and pay rent or your mortgage and maybe have a vacation without worrying too much about it. But, you know, but having like three times that doesn't necessarily you know, that can actually add more problems, right? As, <laughs> as we know, because then people will go and buy more stuff and buy the yacht or the, the plane and that's going to be more liabilities. It makes a lot of sense that there's a certain amount or there's balance. And then beyond that, it doesn't buy more happiness. In, in fact, it may actually lead to more discontent or more pressure.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can read stories about people who win the lottery and suddenly become some millionaires. And before they became millionaires, they managed money just fine. And then afterwards they end up going bankrupt some of them. Mm. And you can also find stories of millionaires who are still not happy. Right.
1: I think there are many, many stories and, and probably most of them are not open about it, but I think that is certainly true.
0: Yeah. If you have a mindset of scarcity around money, no amount of money is going to make you actually feel secure.
1: <laughs> hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? You, you had mentioned that before. And, and I'm thinking about everyone's money origin story. And I think for physicians, we're a very diverse group, right? There's many physicians that I know that came from no money at all. Their parents couldn't contribute anything for their college tuition or the med school tuition. And then there are other physicians who maybe were the the children of physicians or other high income earners and had more security in their finances growing up. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they had a financial education from their parents, but at least their parents were able to provide for them financially in certain ways. And and there's of course a, a wide spectrum, right? There may be parents who have the means, but didn't provide it for their kids or the other way around. And so I think that's part of the difficulty with talking about money, because when you just make a statement, it's almost like there's usually an inherent assumption in there. And so if we say like money is scarce, like that might speak to certain people, but maybe not other people. And, or even we make a statement like, oh, we should all save and invest. Well, that sort of assumes that there's not a lot of debt, right? Especially like high interest consumer debt. And so we can't necessarily make that assumption because people are in such diverse financial situations, even if we're in the same profession. So to start, I would love to just hear about what what does it mean to have like a scarce money upbringing or a scarce money mindset?
0: So yeah, when I talk about like having scarcity around money, just the mindset that, There's never enough money, or it's always going to be hard to to have money or get money. You have to work hard for money. Those are the concepts around people who just have a scarcity mindset around money, as opposed to abundant mindset about money is, well, I can always earn more money. There's always enough money. I have enough. Someone who has a scarcity mindset towards money, they could be making a ton of money, but their money could be, it just flows away from them just as, as soon as it gets to them. Or maybe they actually have a ton in their bank accounts, but they still just don't feel secure with that money. They think that having more money will give them security, but it's really your thoughts about security that actually give you security, right? So for some people, they think, oh, if I had a million dollars, then I would be rich and everything would be great and secure. And then there are other people like, well, a million dollars isn't enough. If I had a million dollars at a four percent withdrawal rate, that's only forty thousand dollars a year. How could I possibly live on forty thousand dollars a year? Well, I can tell you there are a lot of families in the United States that live on forty thousand dollars a year, or even mm-hmm. less. So, you know, it's it's all really relative, but it all goes back to our money mindset and how we think about money, and also. I mean, somewhat what we want in this world, right? There are people who love cars and they may buy like whatever Tesla model or whatever fancy Porsche or Ferrari. And that that does bring them a lot of happiness because they just really love cars. And maybe that is an appropriate place for them to spend money. Whereas for me, I'm not a car person. So it would not make me happy to spend $100,000 on a fancy whatever car. But there may be some physicians who, as an attending physician, think, well, well, what would it look like if I drove a Honda Civic, which is actually what I do drive? <laughs> and they feel like, well, no, I should have a BMW or an Audi or some kind of fancy luxury car to show off my attending status. But what's that really getting for them? If you're purchasing something just to, what's that phrase, living up with the Jones? Kicking up with the, the Joneses. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're just trying to keep out the Jones, I mean, are you really going to be happy? Are you, is that a good way to actually spend your money? So, I mean, those are all the things you can think about when it comes to money mindset.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode as a society and even as a profession, we have many different thoughts around money. And the one theme that seems to be most common is there's a lot of secrecy around money. And embedded in that secrecy, there are feelings of shame, loneliness, sadness, and guilt. In the physician community, I want to give credit to the white coat investor who I discovered about eight years ago when I was personally feeling hopeless and guilty about my own personal finances. I started with reading the White Co-Investor blog, which is packed with valuable information, including the, the background knowledge in basic personal finance, and where do I go open my investment and retirement accounts. All of these things were completely Greek to me, and it was through reading his blog and then later reading his book, which really helped me get the mindset. And now he has a podcast and YouTube videos that eventually helped me gain back the confidence and took the shame, the guilt, the loneliness, the despondency, and the secrecy behind money for me. And don't forget to reach out to Dr. Elisa Zhang for life coaching, especially around money mindset. You can find her at growyourwealthymindset.com and I'll leave all the ways that you can reach her, including the website links in the show notes. I look forward to sharing the next episode with you. It'll be the third part of our amazing conversation where we'll continue to dig deeper into money mindset as well as talk about the FIRE movement. And for those of you who may not be familiar FIRE, F-I-R-E, stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. So stay tuned, everybody. It would be so good.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And now for the disclaimer. I am not a certified financial planner, accountant, or attorney, and nothing I say should be construed as professional investment, tax, or legal advice. This show is primarily for your education and entertainment. I am a physician, but I'm probably not your physician. So if you need any medical advice, please contact your own physician. Thank you.